Welcome to the latest installment of the audio version of the Convivial Society, which I'm posting on November 5th, 2020. As all of you know, these are interesting times in the U.S., but as odd or even derelict as it may seem, the election is not my topic today, at least not in any direct way. May you experience it as a respite. Structurally Induced Acedia I've been reading a fair amount about the meaning and significance of place over the last several weeks, and in the course of that reading, I encountered an observation made almost in passing by the renowned Chinese-American geographer Yi Fu Tuan. In the past, Tuan wrote, news that reached me from afar was old news. Now, with instantaneous transmission, all news is contemporary. I live in the present, surrounded by present time, whereas not so long ago, the present where I am was an island surrounded by the pasts that deepened with distance. I find historical observations of this sort instructive. They need not be profound, and upon reflection they tend to have an, of course that was the case, quality to them. But that said, they are not, in fact, the kind of thing we routinely think about. The value of such observations lies in the striking point of contrast they offer to our situation, which then allows us to perceive more clearly an aspect of our experience that may be so thoroughly ordinary we are tempted to think that this is just the way things have always been, and hence must always be, until, that is, a simple observation suddenly reveals the historical contingency of our situation, and consequently, affords us the simultaneously obvious but potentially revolutionary realization that things could be otherwise. In this case, Tuan reminds us that until relatively recently, roughly the middle of the 19th century, the speed at which news or information could reach us was meaningfully correlated to place. The greater the distance, the longer it took for news to get to you. News from afar, like light from distant stars, was always from the past. The result of this correlation could be unfortunate, of course. Recall, for instance, the Battle of New Orleans, which was fought nearly three weeks after the War of 1812 was formally concluded. But at the same time, place and distance acted as filters of sorts on reality, concentrating a person's attention, by default as it were, upon the world before them, which may now strike us as a feature rather than a bug. In a recent conversation with a student about Tuan's observation, she put it this way, place and by implication distance regulated our information intake. It was likely that we would know most and first about what was nearest and likely dearest to us. The contrast with our situation could hardly be more pronounced, of course. Not too long ago, for example, regardless of where you were in the world, if you happened to be on Twitter at the right time, you would have seen several videos of a massive explosion in Beirut mere minutes after it happened, followed, of course, by wildly speculative real-time commentary about its causes and consequences. This is but one relatively vivid and memorable example out of the innumerable cases we encounter daily. Our present digital deluge of indiscriminately instantaneous information is not altogether without precedent. 
It lies rather on a trajectory that has already taken us through the age of electronic media. In the mid-1980s, for example, Joshua Meyerowitz noted a familiar pattern. 19th century life, Meyerowitz observed in No Sense of Place, entailed many isolated situations and sustained many isolated behaviors and attitudes. The current merging of situations does not give us a sum of what we had before, but rather new synthesized behaviors that are qualitatively different. If we celebrate our child's wedding in an isolated situation where it is the sole experience of the day, then our joy may be unbounded. But when, on our way to the wedding, we hear over the car radio of a devastating earthquake or the death of a popular entertainer or the assassination of a political figure, we not only lose our ability to rejoice fully, but also our ability to mourn deeply. The kind of incident Meyerowitz described is, of course, no longer limited to moments when we have access to broadcast media like radio or television. Upon reading this paragraph, I naturally thought about the emotional roulette we play each time we glance at our social media feeds, which are always with us. You never quite know what news you'll encounter and how it will mess with you for the rest of the day. As a recent song I rather like puts it, turning on my phone was the first mistake I made. In other words, ubiquitous connectivity means that we experience very few isolated situations in Merowitz's sense, and that we inhabit a psychic realm of perpetual effective dissonance and discord, buffeted by unrelenting crosswinds of data and information. It's a small quibble, but I'm not sure the word isolated is the word I'd use here. We tend to think of isolation as a generally negative experience, giving the word a pejorative connotation. I prefer to speak about the integrity of a situation, how it holds together as a distinct experience. What Merowitz is describing, and what digital media accentuates, is the loss of situational integrity entailed by the varieties of telepresence enabled by digital technology. The boundaries of my situation are always fuzzy and permeable. My here is always saturated by countless elsewheres. Place fails to bound my now. And it is not only a matter, as in his example, of experiencing the full and singular emotional depth of an occasion. To take another instance of the same pattern, it is also true, as has been frequently noted, that the boundaries between work and rest have likewise blurred, so that we tend to do neither well, assuming we enjoy the sort of work which can and ought to be done well. Merowitz premised his analysis of electronic media on a fusion of the frameworks provided by Marshall McLuhan and sociologist Irving Goffman, who theorized human identity as a function of the roles we play in a variety of front stage and backstage settings. But Goffman assumed these settings would be bounded in place with relatively clear and concrete boundaries, the door separating the seating area of a restaurant and the kitchen, for example. We knew where we were and thus how to be. McLuhan's work taught Meyerowitz that electronic media dissolved the boundaries of that sort, generating a measure of disorientation with regards to where and when we are, which in turn throws our sense of who we are and how we ought to be into a bit of confusion. 
The electronic combination of many different styles of interaction from distinct regions, Meyerowitz concluded, leads to new middle region behaviors that, while containing elements of formerly distinct roles, are themselves new behavior patterns with new expectations and emotions. It would seem that this middle region, as Meyerowitz puts it, is now more or less where we live to the degree that we adopt the default settings of our technocultural moment anyway. Consequently, we are all with mixed results, improvising and navigating our way through it. But let's come back to the idea that place and distance, which is another way of saying the parameters of experience drawn by the body, regulated our information economy with regards to the quantity of information we encountered and its quality. By quality, I mean not only whether the information was good information, which is to say accurate or truthful, but also relevant, important, pertinent, or personally valuable. Whatever the relative merits of such a situation, or whatever ills of provincialism it may imply, what strikes me here is the degree to which such filters were simply given. We might think of them as default settings about which we would have been largely unreflective. We, on the other hand, bear the epistemic and effective burdens of information superabundance, regardless of whether we deem information superabundance itself to be a blessing or a curse. Either way, we have to grapple with its personal and social consequences. The burdens I have in view, of course, are those we now routinely associate with filtering and managing flows of information, a task which invites the constant deployment of new tools and techniques, which in turn often have counterproductive effects. Clearly, these are not altogether novel burdens. We may find complaints about the sort of thing we think of as information overload in connection with printing, but they are hardly getting easier to bear. And these burdens are not merely cognitive, they are affective as well. Tending to our information ecosystem, if we attempt it at all, requires a striking degree of vigilance and discipline. And as we noted at the outset, there is no given balance between place and speed, no natural context of relative meaningfulness to regulate the pace and quality of information for us. It's on us to do so, daily, often minute by minute. We exist in a state of continuous and conscious attention triage, which can be exhausting, disorienting, and demoralizing. Doom scrolling is one symptom of the general condition, but the habit predates 2020. It's what happens when we give ourselves over to the flood of information and allow it to wash over us. Whatever else one may say about doom scrolling, it seems useful to think of it as structurally induced acedia, the sleepless demon unleashed by the upward swipe of the infinite scroll, or the pull-down refresh, if you prefer. Acedia is the medieval term for the vice of listlessness, apathy, and the general incapacity to do what we ought to do. Ennui is sometimes thought of as a modern variant. As we scroll, we're flooded with information, and about the vast majority of it, we can do nothing, except to keep scrolling and posting reaction gifs. So we do and we get sucked into a paralyzing loop that generates a sense of helplessness and despair. To further clarify our situation, consider W.H. Auden's discussion, which I've cited before, 
of the idea that, as he put it, the right to know is absolute and unlimited. We are quite prepared, Auden wrote, to admit that while food and sex are good in themselves, an uncontrolled pursuit of either is not. But it is difficult for us to believe that intellectual curiosity is a desire like any other, and to recognize that correct knowledge and truth are not identical. To apply a categorical imperative to knowing, so that instead of asking, what can I know? We ask, what at this moment am I meant to know? To entertain the possibility that the only knowledge which can be true for us is the knowledge we can live up to, that seems to all of us crazy and almost immoral. Before the advent of electronic media, the limits associated with being a body in place made it more likely that the knowledge we encountered was also knowledge that we could live up to in the sense that Auden is commending here. In a digital media environment, it is not simply the case that we might be tempted to deliberately, in some Faustian sense, search out knowledge we cannot live up to. We are, in fact, overwhelmed by such knowledge. The idea of knowledge I can live up to implies a capacity to discern a meaningful correlation among the knowledge in question, my situation, my abilities, and my responsibilities. But this capacity is precisely what is overwhelmed in our media ecosystem, hence the ensuing state of acedia. We have ordinarily thought of the dynamics I've been discussing under the rubric of information overload, but I think it's worth pursuing a slightly different line of thought. To think in terms of information overload is already to think in terms of the human being as an information processing machine. I'd prefer to start with the recognition that whatever else we may be, we are bodies, and that the conditions of our embodiment present us with a set of limits we may choose to either respect or ignore. Relatedly, I've been contemplating a thesis of late, that the body has been the root of all human understanding, but that this has been changing so the real challenge we face is that of inhabiting a human-built world wherein the body can no longer ground understanding and may even be experienced as a liability. I suspect there will be more along these lines in future installments. Stay tuned.